Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Into the Bytecode. Today I sat down for a conversation with Simon Delarouvier. Simon's been around crypto for a long, long time and is one of the original and creative thinkers in the space who I deeply admire. In this conversation, we started by talking about storytelling and how he thinks about this notion of bottom-up storytelling. We talked about SCP, which is an interesting subculture on the internet. We talked about Jenkins the Valet, CC0, and how NFT economies can be designed to welcome derivative works. And we talked about how more experiments could be run using bonding curves and Harberger taxes and how NFTs are designed from the bottom up. I really enjoyed this conversation, and with that, I'll leave you to it. With Untitled Frontier, you're kind of exploring the medium of building a shared universe. I think he, the way you framed it was bottom-up versus top-down storytelling and playing with that spectrum. Yeah. Um why I got into storytelling at all recently was I, I, I realized that everything that I've been doing is like, I, I enjoy being creative. So it's like, you know, I've, I've made music, I've done writing, I've coding is creative. I enjoy being on stage. Like I enjoy creativity in all its formats, but I realized even doing a startup, right? Doing a startup is a creative work. So to me, it's like through all these threads of everything that I that I enjoyed in terms of creativity, creativity, I realized you're essentially doing storytelling at the end of the day. It's like when you're on stage, you have to tell a story. When you're building a startup, you have to, through marketing, tell a story about why this matters. Um, if you're writing music, you tell a story about what the listener is supposed to feel. And if you're writing a blog post about something there has to be a story like why 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 are people reading this article you know so it's like throughout this all of it's like storytelling and i realized oh well maybe i'm just actually a storyteller first and foremost and i need to hone that craft uh in different ways and so getting into fiction storytelling was just a way to continue that exploration in new different ways and seeing how all these threads are put together like after i i left consensus i was a consensus for four years from 2015 to 2019 i i I took the opportunity to write my first novel and it was just extremely joyful experience because i found that the process was actually very similar in terms of how i was how i was creating in terms of like crypto economics and token economics which is you essentially have to sit with this idea in your head the entire time and push it and mold it into different directions and see if it works or not how is that happening for you on a day-to-day basis? Because I, I can I can imagine that writing a novel can also be a very painful experience for some people. Yeah, I, but I enjoy that process. I enjoy the process of feeling lost in the story. And so yeah. for me, it's a process of exploration in itself. It's like you're not just exploring the world that you're creating, but you're exploring possible universes paths and permutations constantly and that felt like a similar kind of process to thinking about crypto economics you have to go but what if someone does this right it's like what if there's a malicious actor doing this and so in storytelling and writing this novel it was constantly going well why didn't the character just choose to do this or like what if the character decides to do this yeah oh now that they've done this it means that character's motivation is going to change like they're going to want to do something else based on this behavior and you also wanted to ensure that characters have agency. You're not just following a plot. So you constantly have to be all the people. That that was that's just a very joyful experience to me because it 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 
it's this it's this constant process of exploration and pulling from different futures and trying to make sure that there's this, there's some narrative that makes sense in a logical process. So on a day to day, that that was that was primarily it. But I've also learned a lot from writing a novel and how I would do it again in the future. I feel there's this dichotomy that's used in writing, which is called plotters versus pantsers. And plotters define the plot beforehand and then they fill in details. Pantsers are people that they call the writing from the seat of their pants, which is just like they wing it, right? They start writing and the characters seem to have a life of their own. And they You're the latter, I imagine. Bit of both, bit of yeah. both. Like I would, I would, I would go like, I, this is where it should be headed. And I know there's key plot points that's coming up that I think it's going to matter. Let me just see what the characters are doing along the way. And then I change it. But I feel like the, the reason why that's a bit more difficult to do is just takes longer, right? So you have to be willing to go back and redraft, right? Constantly. Right. So you would, there would be something that you go, say three quarters to the book, some characters, it just felt right that the characters would do this, but you go like, well, the only reason why it feels great here is that you have to actually set this up way earlier in the book, which means you have to go rewrite some stuff. And now you go, okay, well, now I'm rewriting this stuff, which means these characters might change their motivations based on the things I have here. So it's, you have to, like, I call it like defragmentation. You remember we used to defrag hard drives? It's like the constant reshuffling process. It's like, okay, go back. Da, 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 da. It's like a sorting algorithm. Okay, go back. Da, 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 da. Fix, 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 fix. And so the process takes very, very long if you do it that way. I mean, it took, uh, I was a first time writer and I do it, did it full time. And it took about, it took about a year and a half year year to eight months or so to write full-time to get a published wow book. yeah it's it's very interesting just hearing you describe that because like yeah. i guess when you're building a product or a startup there there is a similar process in which like as you're kind of building it and you're moving forward on this timeline you have new ideas and your whole sense of like what this thing is how it should be formulated is kind mm -hmm. of like evolving Mm -hmm. But you have this like helpful constraint, which is you can't go back and change history. Like the only, mm -hmm. the only, uh, your degrees of freedom are only like from here going forward. Yeah. Whereas when you're yeah. like writing a story, you can literally be like, okay, I got to go back and like redo yeah. this yeah. whole thing, yeah. which I imagine, especially if you're drawn to, you know, I mean, elegance or like things, the puzzle pieces fitting perfectly together. I imagine mm. it can really like hook into that sense of like being a perfectionist and like really yeah. just kind of like have an infinite feedback loop. To oh, yeah. oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> that I mean, but through. that's dangerous. That's why people don't finish stuff. You know, they, yeah. they, they, they get hung up on the fact that it has to be perfect. And, and I try actively to avoid that. It's just when it feels to be 80% done, I go like pub publish. You gotta shift. <laughs> you, know? you gotta, like, you gotta have some of that shifting mentality. You gotta get stuck. But I must say the, 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 the process of creating was obviously very different to what I was used to before. Like coming from tech, it's like, it's acceptable to go, Hey, I have a new idea. It takes a weekend to code or like a two three weeks to code and you publish and see what people think or feel and like then it's like this very nice feedback loop of like okay people are using it or this sucks or this is good and you try to improve writing a story and it takes a year and a half it it's kind of sucks to give people a draft you know to go right. and read this because again it takes a lot of time right it's not like oh you can look at a website for 10 minutes and someone can give you feedback no it's like you're putting a massive amount of expectation on someone to go hey friend read this thing it takes six hours right. seven hours to read and it's a draft so it becomes a very like lonely solo experience i imagine yes it is it it, it, it can be and i mean it's obviously stuff i 
thought about coming from a tech space, like how do you improve feedback along the way and whether it actually matters, right? I, I'm not even sure it matters because it's a different thing when you're creating a product for people to use, right? Versus something that you feel you're a creator and you have a story to tell. It, it feels like it should be more the case that when people create to for, for absorbing a story, uh, whether it's music or art or, 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 or storytelling, you should stand on your own two feet and be confident yeah. about what you're doing and then let other people just interpret that, whether it's good or bad. Obviously, there's ways along the way which you can improve it. I've been reading uh, Creativity Inc. from one of the Pixar mm-hmm. founders. Ed Catmull. How, yeah, Ed Catmull, yeah. And how they used to uh, fix stories along the way during production. And they have this thing called the brain trust, which is just like a group of people that they trust to give opinions without, without ego, right? And it's like, that would be great to have access to that while you're writing a book or a novel that takes a year and a half. But at the end of the day, that's just someone that's a good storyteller. And that might not even be the case. The good storytellers are the people that want to appreciate what you're doing. You know, it might be that you're writing something that's completely different that doesn't fit the narrative or normal way of storytelling. There's different ways of storytelling. It's the three-act structure. There's the Kishu Tenketsu, is a Japanese-style, Chinese-Japanese-style narrative storytelling. How does that one work? How does the... Kishu Tenketsu? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It's just too it's cool a... to, to not ask. It yeah, yeah. too cool. Yeah, strangely enough, one of the popular, most popular posts on my blog is the Kishu Tenketsu article because it's just super, <laughs> like... SEO juice for some reason. I, I, it's like everyone that Googles Kishu Tenketsu somehow finds my blog post about it. But it's in, it's an interesting way to do storytelling, which is it was started from, I might be wrong in remembering this correctly, so apologies if I don't get this correct. But as, as far as I remember, it was started as a form of Chinese poetry um, and then got adopted in the rest of Asia. So the formula is quite interesting. It's a, it's a four-act structure of storytelling, which... It's often, it's often used in an example where people say it's not the conflict-based storytelling. So a lot of Western-based storytelling is conflict narrative. It's the hero journey that overcomes the internal and external problems and superhero movies and everything's conflict narrative. Like we have to overcome the hero and all this kind of stuff. But Kishu Tenketsu is usually used as an example for conflictless storytelling. How it works is the four-act structure, which is there's an introduction. So it just like sets the scene. Then there's some interesting development. Some Something changes. The third act is usually unrelated to the first two parts. It's just kind of strange, something completely different. And then the fourth act is sort of what they call and the, the elucidation. Why the first two acts and the third act is actually relevant to each other. So why it's interesting is the form of storytelling, it's, it's you, you read it because you want to be surprised. So the final thing is always, oh, that's why the third act is here because it right. shows how it relates to the first and the second act. So obviously it's quite different, right? To, to the traditional Western yeah. three act structure, because it's like the third act is supposed to confuse you. So you, 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 you want to read it because the third act is going to confuse you. Yeah. And then the fourth act will go, here's why these puzzle pieces. It fit will together. resolve it all. What's yes. a, is there, is there a popular example of a story or yes. thing that uses this structure? Um, so obviously it's used often in, in poetry. So right. it's like usually short, shorter narratives. Uh, longer term, I've, I, I've yet to read actually longer form Kishu Tenketsu, but the, the classic one is by poet uh, San, Sanyu, Sanyu Rai. Um, and it and goes, the introduction is, Daughters of Itoya in the Honmachi of Osaka. So just like, a, it's like a years, there's these, these daughters, these royal daughters. And then the developments next year, it says, 
the elder daughter is 16 and the younger is 14. Okay, so you know now more about these daughters. And now comes the third act, which is completely unrelated. It says, throughout history, the generals killed the enemy with bows and arrows. Okay, mm. well, why does this matter? Why, why right. are you saying this? And then the conclusion or the twist why these puzzle pieces matter is like the daughters of Itoya kill with their eyes. You know, so it's ah, like, nice. uh, okay, it's an interesting sort of introduction, development, change, and then it's reconciliation at the end. And so it's, yeah. a, it's, it'd be interesting to see this on a longer form storytelling. But I also think one of the examples in the blog post is that I also use is you can actually do three act structures within context, Kishutenketsu as well. You know, you start with act one is the character conflict, act two is rising of the tension, and act three is the resolution and, and the climax. Mm-hmm. So just this constant growth narrative of the stakes must keep getting higher. And so I wrote like an example of like a three act structure within Kishutenketsu, which is just a story about a puppy and a boy, which is like the first act is a puppy lives with his family. He's young and likes to know and things. And then the development is one day the dog ravishes a corner of a couch and some papers. So now you realize, okay, the dog really likes to chew his stuff and whatever. And now the third act is like, what's going on? A boy is stuck in his room. He is crying. So obviously you want to ask him what's going on. Why this, why is the boy crying? Why is, why is it related to the dog story? And then the final reconciliation is the father opens the door and apologizes for grounding the boy. The dog left the paper trail and did indeed eat the boy's homework. So <laughs> I understand, oh, the boy's crying because the dad yeah. berated the boy, but actually the dog did eat the yeah. boy's homework. So, but there is this three act tense structure, which is this conflict between the boy and the boy and the father. It's just revealed in a different structure than linear start, middle, end. Yeah. I love that. One question that comes to mind for me is on this theme of top-down versus bottom-up storytelling, right? Mm. And if I was to describe, you know, this spectrum, top-down is there's an individual or like, you know, a, a group, a centralized group who has a particular, you know, is like carrying this torch the way you were while you were writing the story, you're like going through it beginning to end. And Bottom up is maybe there's a seed planted and then everyone's kind of left to their own devices to kind of expand on different story arcs and like complement each other, like run into like different circles. And there isn't a kind of centralized cohering force like pulling it all together. Mm. So where have you seen this bottom up storytelling be effective And I also see parallels to this. This is like one of the open questions in my mind when we talk about, you know, DAOs, for example, right? You know, some people conceive of DAOs as like there is no, or I mean, again, it's on a spectrum and all versions of this exist to different Mm. extents, but there's a version of a DAO where there's like no leader. And Mm. it's just a thousand community members who are contributing a little bit where the project aligns with their interests and availability and, and, you know, all their life circumstances. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, it's maybe, you know, a project hat does have a lead, like maybe does have a benevolent dictator who's like carrying the torch, but they're just 
kind of enlightened in how they're operating. They're not trying to like keep all the control for themselves, but in a very kind of more intentional way, they like give responsibility to different people, bring them in, and this like opens up over time. So in thinking through this, a part of me feels that the kind of most radical, interesting, potential, you know, things that crypto can give birth to are on this like extreme end of like the bottom up spectrum. Right. Mm. And the projects I get super excited about, like loot, like yearn, Mm. how it was started, like even Ethereum to some extent, a part of me yearns for that to be the future that we're building. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting. The, the way I, the way I see bottom up storytelling is before we could write stuff down, uh, stories were constantly reinterpreted, you know, folk tales, indigenous stories. It's all stories that are open to remixing, being retold. Um, it's the, the story of the bard in the inn singing songs about something. They didn't own the song. It was, there was constant reinterpretation and remixing happening. So the story existed as sort of spread through the memory of the network, beat the people and the, the, wherever the story is, there wasn't an owner of the story. And today online, we do have bottom-up storytelling. It's memes, right? So right. like people create memes and no one knows actually who created an original meme, right? Or where it started. Sometimes you do, but rarely sometimes, you, or you don't even care, right? You don't care that this person created the original meme or some, some forth like that. So it's just constant collective storytelling that people have through expressing themselves through gifts and pictures and modifications and formulas and templates and so forth. So it does, it does happen more so, but part of my exploration, like you're right with using blockchains is the sort of question of how can we facilitate that, but also then in through this process, you know, either cultivate new relationships, but also uh, bring value to people that contribute through this sort of messy organic process, such that it's more than just a social process or a social ritual that people do. And I think the key thing there to make it work on that extreme is to sort of define define new structures of relationships and in in this case it can be ways uh, new ways of ownership uh, but it can be something else too uh, that we don't know yet right so you know when you look at bitcoin or ethereum i i think there are doubts right because because totally. is it decentralized yes there's no one power structure here uh, it's fairly autonomous it can run it runs by itself and yes it's kind of an organization because we do have a shared goal here by maintaining this ledger for sharing social relationships so in doing this more explicitly as a as a as a you know besides just playful meme creation storytelling like being a kid in a backyard and pretending a branch is a stick like to formalize this process is what i've been interested in and trying to figure out and the the, in that article, I wrote more about it. And I think the, the key thing here is just, again, when I also mentioned earlier, an interest around platforms and protocols is to define like, hey, here are some rules that we can use to create together. And by defining some specific rules, it, it, it allows people to explore more. So I, I can give an example. Before the blockchain, it still exists today, but it's like a project that doesn't use the blockchain is SAP, which stands I for- I came secure. across this. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. It's secure, contain, protect. It's a collaborative creative writing exercise where the goal is, is for people in the real world to find these strange anomalies in the, re- in the real world and then write fiction about them, right? So it's, it's not conspiratorial. It's just like we, we're enjoying creating 
though though coming across it i was like this must have like found its niche amongst like the conspiracy theorists over the last couple of yeah. years uh, yeah yeah maybe there's some meta narrative here going on but it's creative fiction right so it's yeah. like, there's this weird picture that someone took and we're creating some imaginary world around this picture and the goal of secure content protect is to log all these anomalies because we have to secure reality. We have to contain and protect ourselves from these anomalies. But one thing about why it works is because the advent of the wiki, right? So the entire thing is structured like wiki pages. So you write yeah. a wiki page about your anomaly. And that structure is important because it allows people to think in that form. It's like, oh, you see something weird? This must have a wiki page, right, about this anomaly. So with nfts it's like there are options here to create formats and rules for people to go hey in this format we can create new kinds of bottom-up based storytelling that allows people to have to be imaginative it allows people to earn from their contributions and gives it enough structure so that it's not just lucy lucy falls apart right. along the way you have to have necessary structure to guide people in a certain way and loot like you said is for me is a very good example because it it purposely has like what I would say, lower fidelity. So it, it invites right. people to imagine, right? So it's like, here's just a bunch of text describing an adventurer's loot bag. Now you go invent what, whatever this is supposed, supposed to mean. So that, that to me is very exciting because you can now take that and through the composability of blockchain as a platform and NFTs as a platform, you can expand upon that and potentially earn, earn through your contributions along the way. So yeah, yeah it's, but that tension, that tension remains interesting I think the only reason why we have, say, in the last 100 years-ish, 100, 200 years maybe, with the advent of, like, you know, protectable IP and all these kind of things, we've seen the more tendency for top-down stories to be the, the things that succeed. And, you know, Disney is the reason, Disney is the answer, right? You can see that, like, it works. I also feel like um, designing a system that allows for bottom-up storytelling or, you know, bottom-up building invites a different kind of an attitude from the builder of that project. Like as mm. the, mm. you know, quote unquote founder or the builder, you know, you need to have a much more flexible relationship with what you're putting out into the world. Mm. And I feel like it like really does benefit from thinking of these things that you're putting out as like projects rather mm. than like companies like mm. this, this is a, this is a project that's going to like develop in any number of directions. It doesn't need to be anything. And I'm like really designing it to give autonomy to this like other group of people to like take mm. it in whichever direction is going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And whereas a company is like, no, I have this like vision of like what this is going to become in 10 years time. Mm -hmm. And this is something that uh, actually Zach from Coordinate said that has really struck stuck with me, which is he said, companies are a deliberate process, deliberate outcome, whereas DAOs are deliberate process, emergent outcome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but even but but you're absolutely right. Even even like the form of the company, you know, again, is 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 like I said before, you have form and structure that usually lends itself to certain kind of behavior. And and this is actually something I've been personally struggling with with my business with Untitled Frontier is that I'm trying to get out of the idea that it should be a tech startup, right? Right. Because I'm that's only because I'm used to tech startups, right? 
the company is a vessel at the end of the day that is supposed to enable something in the real world, you know. So now, yes, there is legal stuff, tax accounting things right. in the US. Which inevitably kind of like anchors you into a form, but yeah. Yes, but then sometimes people serve the form rather than using the form for a goal in the real world. So, you know, it's, it's like, it's like you're, you are constrained by the form itself uh, in, in order to think. But this is also coming back to the, you know, classic, the more I figure out, the more I see that Marshall McLuhan was so correct when he said the medium is the message. You know, it's like, it, at the end of the day, the medium defines what kind of stories you can tell. Even in business, like the fact that you have a company sort of means that you're thinking about things in a certain way, even though it's, even though it's not sometimes intentional. So if you say you start with a DAO, you're already enshrining a way of thinking versus you're starting a company. And even starting companies in different countries, like starting a company in Europe versus starting a company in the US, company in South Africa, you're already starting from a different like starting totally. point of what this is supposed to enable and trying to get out of that frame of thinking to go like, this is not supposed to be a tech startup. You know, this is just supposed to serve me in doing what I want to do. You know? Totally. And maybe it's not the right way at the end of the day. You know, maybe right, like those constraints, other. those constraints, like just limit the design space that you're Absolutely. exploring in a very subconscious way. Like even, you know, let's say you're bringing together a group of people to build something. If it's purely going to be on chain, you can just experiment with all sorts of like crazy structures to do that. Like mm. there could be like mm. quadratic funding, there could be like all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. But as soon as you're, you know, trying to do it within the existing regulatory framework. And you're like, okay, are these contractors? Do I need to give them yeah. like 1099 forms? Yeah. Because yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. Yeah. and then that, you're, that, you're immediately like screwed. Yeah, but, but that's why I enjoy the collaboration, exploration in the blockchain space because it allows you to get out of those modes of thinking, right? Because yeah. even like the simple question, are these employees or contractors? Like if you set up a split and the sale goes directly in a split, you don't have to give people 10 right. So, it's so like, maybe it's a right. feature, not a but. It's to like yeah. push the don't be but an intermediary, thinking. and that's how you bypass. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. just also changing your mode of thinking. I think it's it's something I, I I always struggle with with critics of blockchains. Like I I I think it's necessary for critique and stuff. But I think the difficult thing I always struggle with is like with, with critics of blockchains is. I want to I want to ask him like do you not think that having a public ledger is the most interesting thing that we are out there like this is so interesting like we've never we've never had this on a global scale like a public ledger right like how can you not think this is interesting <laughs> you know like, yeah people say yeah but it's like a slow computer yeah but that's that's the point <laughs> you know it's supposed <laughs> right. to be it's supposed to be just a, a, a sh the shared consensus making mechanism with a public ledger that enshrines you know social relationships in and different objects over time this is so interesting <laughs> like can't you just see that i don't know it's so yeah. that that's my biggest frustration i i the other critique and stuff is fine like i i share some of the the worries and and concerns but that to me is just like have an imagination <laughs> sorry totally. i didn't want to denigrate people but yeah no i i feel the same way where do you find inspiration today in terms of projects that are experimenting with this bottom-up emergent storytelling in an interesting way? And mm -hmm. I saw you talk about one, which I hadn't come across before, which was like Jenkins the Valet. Jenkins is, the Valet, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. 
what what are some of these uh, threads that you think it would be worth like me and other people paying attention to? Yeah. So the I think the big factor really in in how blockchain based story or storytelling using blockchains can can enable new bottom up based storytelling is that there's one key thing here that that has changed and it's the ability for people that created derivative works to earn from doing so with more incentives than tra traditionally so if creative commons is a thing people write fan fiction it's a thing uh, and some fan fiction writers even become successful they hone their craft there and even you know 50 shades of gray was first twilight fan fiction right <laughs> so that Incentive loop works, right? It works, but it, it could be better because if you are a derivative creator, one, you might not have the rights to actually create the derivative. It's just non-commercial maybe right. use. Some cases, you might not even have the rights to use names and, and things or characters from the original. And then secondly, even if you're allowed non-commercial fan fiction, that's it, right? You're not, you can't sell your, your derivative work, right? So... But that creates a constraint upon the people, uh, people creating derivatives. So they're kind of stuck there. Either you, you approach the original license holders and ask for permission to publish and, and right. earn from it. And, that, that and that's just that like was... killing the entire long tail of experimentation. Exactly. Yes, 100%. I mean, there, there has been examples of like, like that, like Baoshu. I think the book is called Baoshu, which was uh, basically the fourth book in the, the Sitchin Lu uh, trilogy uh, three body problem trilogy there yeah. was a fan fiction book and they loved it so much they published it as the fourth book so it's like yeah fan fiction works cool. sometimes but the way it helps in in nft based storytelling is like if i own the nft and i create der derivative work from this nft i would then earn from bringing value to the original collection right and i could earn from creating derivative works which i'm allowed to sell with commercial rights so the equivalent would be I'm writing Star Wars fan fiction. I can sell my Star Wars fan fiction, but if the Star Wars fan fiction is successful, it's as if I've had Disney stock and I also earned from Disney becoming more successful through the fact that I wrote successful or great Star Wars fan fiction. So yeah. now- is that, is that because you would, you would own some of the Disney NFTs beforehand or because they would kind of close this feedback loop and have a system for kind of rewarding yeah, it's fan fiction creators? It's just more simpler. Like let's say Star Wars had the license, uh, had the, the the Creative Commons license that allowed people to write derivatives and sell them. And it anyone in the world could buy Disney stock, right? Yeah, that, totally. Then those incentives would be similar to what you see in NFTs. And Jenkins Savala is an example where someone went, bought a board ape, decided I'm going to invent a story for this board ape, and now I'm going to sell derivative works based on this board ape. So what's happening is if Jenkins the Valley as a project decides this was great, we are done with this project, right? They made money from selling derivative works, but now they have a valuable ape because they imbued value into this specific ape. So they brought value to the entire collection or community of board apes by making this one board ape more valuable. They increased their financial returns by making that one specific board ape more valuable. And they've earned from creative creating derivative works. So it just basically means if you wish to create derivative works, there are more ways for you to earn now than previously. It doesn't mean you have to participate to that extent. But if you were someone that goes, I would love to create derivative works, but obviously, you know, I have a job. I, I can only do this over weekends. I would love to write. I think there's a lot of people that go, 
I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I would love to write a Star Wars story one day. You know, that would make me really happy, you know, to give back to something that meant a lot to me growing up. But I can't. You know, I, 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 I can if I want to write a Star Wars pictures, um, right. um, fan fiction story. But that's it. The only way for me to do that on a legitimate scale is to approach Lucasfilm and say, hey, I have an idea for a Star Wars fan fiction story. Totally. Good luck getting totally. into those meetings. <laughs> And it's like, it's the whole stance of these CC0 NFT communities towards derivative works is completely different, right? Like it's, it's yeah. the, you're, you're welcoming people riffing mm. off of what you're doing. Like with yeah. nouns, their whole, like their whole purpose is to like proliferate the noun meme, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that, um, but it's so, it's so wonderful because it's, 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 to me, it's like we're getting best of both worlds here, right? We're not yeah. restricting access to content anymore. It's like to say anyone is free to enjoy this, right? Like in, with Antara Frontier, all the stories are being pub published on a creative comment. So anyone can read it. I mean, I'm even producing narrative audio dramas from it. It's available on podcasts, YouTube. You can listen yeah. to it anywhere for free. The I listened to the latest free. one on Spotify. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So the content is free, but 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 you're still able to earn from this process, right? That's exciting. You know, it, that's what's new. And that, that's what is, that's exciting. So you get abundance of storytellers telling stories and you're not restricting access to the enjoyment of the stories, but you're earning elsewhere. And that's great. I really love right. that. Right, like uh, consumption and distribution is totally free and open, but ownership in that like original meme is, yes. is limited is scarce yes yeah exactly yeah but it, it just basically means that the yeah the ownership doesn't come from the the distribution of the content anymore um it's you're buying something right. else and that 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 model i mean it's not going to work for all kinds of stories i don't think you know something like avengers or dune is going to suddenly go hey we're going to make money only from nfts and all the cinema releases is free for anyone to come we're paying right. NFT. yeah and all the theaters for anyone to just come watch. Who knows? Maybe that experiment needs to happen with a two hundred million dollar movie, and we'll see if they make more than two hundred. Like if they make more, you know. Totally. But you know, this is this is this is why I got into blockchain so many years ago. It's because I saw this as a platform to experiment with with creativity. Like I was a creative, and the first thing I saw with Bitcoin was, wow, I actually can get paid for the stuff I'm doing. Because growing up in South Africa, I created video games during high school. I was like, I could never sell these. Right. I, I didn't have access, like say being living in the US did. So for me, like seeing Bitcoin for the first time, I was going, wow, I can code something up, give access to people to earn from selling games without having to go through this sort of difficult process of signing up for access to financial services. And so that was always the promise. Let's do creative stuff with this, this, this stuff. Let's enable creativity. Yeah. And an and adjacent question which is a thread I know you've been pulling on over the years is how to design these like base layer NFT economies. So mm -hmm. like, so that the design kind of encourages participation and is open to new participants while like rewarding people who are early. And mm -hmm. you had this post, I forget from how long ago, but it was talking about a model that would combine bonding curves with Harberger. Is that how you say it? I still Harberger. Don't know. I assume Harberger it's taxes. Text, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like one of those words that I've only, that I've like read a million times, but I still don't know how to say, but it was a model yeah. that combined like bonding curves and Harberger taxes that would, you know, just kind of like 
uh, create more pressure for like liquidity, like mm. less of people kind of like sitting on their NFTs forever mm. at and like listing them for these like insane prices. Yeah. But reading through that, at least to me, it felt like we haven't nearly explored the design space of what can be done here. Like most NFT projects still do 10,000 like PFPs and that's that. So I'm curious, what are, what are models that you think people should experiment with? Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with that extent. I think this has been the case in the past few years in the blockchain space, uh, people copy successful models and that's fine, right? But at some point it does get uninspiring. Like I don't, I don't want to see another 10K PFP project, right? If, if it's a cool thing, sure, go for it. But there's a lot of uninspired stuff that, that, that just copies the model sells 10,000 NFTs without thinking more on like whether it's the right model or not for that specific execution. It's kind of similar to startup equity. You know, I'd never, I've always wanted to read why people just say there should be this one year cliff and then you earn for four years equity. It's like, there's no, I couldn't find any literature why people decided this is the best way to incentivize employees anyway well because like the 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 design that has been used over and over again like has kind of it's it's a defensible decision to make like you don't need to explain it whereas if you're trying to deviate then you need to like explain your whole reasoning for it yeah exactly but so with with nft collections uh i 100% agree that there has been not nearly enough exploration about around exploring different property rights and economic tools to facilitate nfts in general so the one one example that you mentioned was bonding curves so i experiment with that with neoelastics where you can generate these pieces of like neoplasticism inspired uh squares and then as this bonding curve so you can always sell it back into the bonding curve and then another one i did was this artwork is always on sale which as it says on the on the cover uh, uses hardware attacks to require people to always post a salt price and the, the 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 nft can always be it can never be impossible to hold so you know it's obviously likely that in the future a lot of nfts will just be lost to time people lose their keys or people die without being able to transfer right. these things and so forth but with this arbix always on sale it will always be possible to get this nft over time yeah yeah it's um, always up for sale it's always up for sale, but yes, I generally feel like there's there's not, not been enough exploration in terms of what people can do, and yeah, I wish people, more people just generally explore with it. With with Untitled Frontier, for example, we release a collection with each each story, and one of the collections with each story is like a uh, there's like a four week campaign, and anyone can buy one NFT. And after this the period is over, then that's it, right? You can't buy new ones. Like it's, an, why... it's, it's just a straight up inflating supply during that four week period. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But the only reason why I wanted to do that is because one, I wanted to create a similar experience to traditional merchandise, right? So you, right. if you want to right. enjoy Star Wars, you could buy the lightsaber and those stuff is only available during the campaign of the, the film. So it was a kind of similar thing. You release a short story, anyone can go buy one. You don't have to go like, oh my God, I have to rush to buy one. And like, oh no, I have to participate in a Dutch auction and, and like, God, it's so difficult to get this thing uh, allow <laughs> right. lists, like whitelists or whatever, like all these kind of like uh, It's insane mechanisms. how many projects that I would have loved to be involved with, I've missed out on because I just like didn't see the message on yeah. Twitter and it was open for like yeah. a two hour period. Yeah. 
And so it's just like, yeah, low price. You can buy any amount that you want. If it happens to sell 20,000, then great. And, you know, if it, happens, it sells 200, that's also fine. You know, it's just, it's just the creating the ability to, for, for people to buy one when they want to during that sort of campaign period. So that's, that's an experiment still. Uh, it works okay. I think it matters that we also experiment with not, you know, making NFTs that are super expensive as well. How do you think about like if you're building a new project from the ground up today, whether it's Untitled Frontier or like someone else, like a friend is working on something new and you're thinking through how to distribute the ownership layer of this project, right? To like lean into this model. And one of the first forks in the road is, do I do this with like ERC-20 tokens or do I do this with like this, with, with NFTs? And they just kind of create uh, totally different, they're different design spaces, different affordances for the community to come together. I think NFT still for me is more interesting, especially if it's like distributing ownership uh, in a project. And the reason why is that um, I think a part of the reason why people participate is again, coming back to the original point of bottom-up storytelling is this meme, the memes around the things that we do. Right. You know, people participate in Dogecoin because it had a funny dog on it. Right. That's the only thing that Matt, why, why people are still alive. So the meme matters. Right. So why you participate in a specific DAO is also because what it represents to you and what makes you feel, but also how it relates to the relationships you're building with the people in this DAO. Right. So again, shared goals, working towards shared goals. The thing why NFTs are more interesting than say a liquid ERC20 token is that an NFT also defines your individual membership in this collective. So right. it is still, let's say nouns is a good example, right? Each noun in the nouns DAO can vote on its treasury. So in there, in that sense, each noun is fungible, should right. technically fungible because you have the same rights, but each noun is unique in its appearance. Right. So you feel like this one represents you in this collective, even though your rights are similar to everyone else. And that's great because it makes you connect both, makes you connect as an individual towards a larger collective. So previously, with all the sort of meme based coins and stuff, it was just how do I show my individual contribution? And it was only through how many coins you had and maybe right. other more, to, more sort of meet quote unquote meet space ways like right. socially and culturally totally and like tying your ens name to it and then talking yes. on twitter or something yeah. yeah yeah stuff like that but now with an nft you go like this is who i am in this collection and collective so that that's why it's just more interesting to me and it's probably easier to go from making an nft fungible you know through all the through like uh, you can tokenize the nft there's like fractional and a bunch of other ways totally. to make that fungible, if you need it to be fungible, then the other way around. You know, what if Uniswap wanted to do NFTs? It's probably more difficult to go from taking the Uni token and making NFTs from it. It's doable. You can still totally. do it. You can, you can say, let's create NFTs. You need 200 Uni to be staked to the NFT in order to create it. Boom, you're done. But yeah. It's, it's, they it's, also, NFTs also have more, it just let you create different types of membership or roles within the yeah. community, right? In yeah. a way where with the tokens, it's just like a uniform mm. Uh, mm. sea of it. Yeah, I, think, I think that's also something that I want to see more of over time because a lot of the stuff that's now successful as DAOs are probably still going to run into problems in the future, especially around general 
ownership of capital. Like we know that like if an economy only existed through ownership of capital, then over time you will get monopolies, right? So over time, more people will just buy up this thing and crowd out competition, and then they will be the ones that succeed. So there needs to be more ways to get, how can I say this, distribution of power over some yeah. of these, these systems. And that comes from changing membership roles and giving power. It's like, it's the reason why democracies usually have three chambers of governance, you know? Yeah. So in order to distribute that power, there's already, there's already like this discontent over the fact that a lot of VCs own, for example, large portions of, of capital over some of these protocols, you know, and that that's detrimental going forward. So how, how would you do this? Like, let's say you are announced out and these nouns are selling for, I don't know how much, like 200 K or something. And there are people who are contributing to the project. I don't know how they're thinking about this. Like, how do you grow the base here? Like, I guess I've, there, there are examples of NFTs. Like I think recently I saw Kevin Rose's proof collective are doing PFPs now, which will have, there will be 10,000 of them, whereas there were a thousand of the original NFTs. And so this is opening it up to a wider base. Is that like, I guess that's one model, right? That as your project kind of succeeds, you kind of do new iterations. You kind of like issue new classes of shares. Like if we were going to like take the corporation analogy. Uh, yes, that is one way. But my thinking is more around creating social institutions above and beyond the capital-based institutions. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, create a separate, quote-unquote union or something related to the, the actual capital institution that is a separate powerful force that can ensure that only capital is not the thing that succeeds here mm -hmm. you know so it could be something like you know they could be prominent noun-based holders that go and say okay we are now going to create a new nouns association right a global nouns association of these 10 initial nouns holders because we are invested in the success of this project but any future members of this association will be voted on not Based by the nouns merit. holders right but the association itself so in that way then in the future you can have someone that's an association that is and hopefully the association remains powerful that has that maybe doesn't own a noun that's necessary for it to make decisions for the success of nouns going into the future so you you get different input and and the power locus locus that isn't just the capital itself, but that that takes effort, right? And the association might be funded by the nouns DAO, right? Initially, right. but then it then its modus operandi is to get funding elsewhere. So it's like it's just creating the separate structures of power. And obviously, one other way to do that as well is to experiment with with time based systems. So. You know, for example, in the U.S. government, Supreme Court justice is a lifetime appointment, but a president is voted on every four years, right? So if there are different ways in which to give act people access to certain kinds of power and roles that is defined by different time lengths, I think that's also a valuable way to combat any kind of power from being dominant. Yeah. Um, not 100% sure what that looks like in practice, but it, but it, but it could be like, hey, like the noun style holders... Uh, votes on someone that has executive privilege to do some specific stuff for five years. Totally. 
Yeah, like orthogonal centers of power that aren't yeah. based on the capital base. Yeah. That's one of the vectors that's getting conflated in a lot of projects is ownership and decision-making. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they don't need to be the same thing. Like in a company, there's the shareholders, but then there's like the CEO who's like the ultimate mm -hmm. decision maker. And it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean that they're the largest shareholder of the group. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so these two things being kind of like separated from each other as independent poles, I think mm -hmm. is interesting. You, you do want to ensure that the people that are decision makers have the correct risk profiles. You don't want like a struggle with the principal agent problem where like someone's making decisions, right. but they're not bearing the same risks. But ultimately, you do want uh, either locus's, locus of power that isn't just the capital. Yeah, whatever that might look like in the future. I'm not actually sure what it will look like. But you do kind of see this in some extent with some of the projects where there's this, there's the foundation, there's the DAO, and there's the company that started everything. Like, like Uniswap Labs, the Uniswap's DAO, and then I don't know if there's a foundation, but but that kind of like three three system structure. It's like the regional comp company corporation is being hired or funded by the foundation or the DAO, and then the foundation is sort of a champion of both, and the, the DAO is like a separate decision making body, like with the Yuga Labs and the ApeCoin DAO, for example. You know, it's like different yeah. different structures of power here. They're not fooling anyone. It's basically the same entity, but over time, the goal is for that to be separate stuff that was separate powers in the ecosystem. Yeah. Have, have so. you followed the, the whole ApeCoin development? What are your thoughts on, because that's another model, right? Of like mm. NFT base, and then there's an ERC20 token that's mm. interest, introduced later. Mm. I'm, I'm bearish on projects that decide to capitalize on their success by making a DAO that just goes, we should fund stuff. You know, and it's like, I, I feel like there should be more here than just doing that as a way to, get liquidity and or like make more money, print more money from this system. You know, for me, it would have been better if if they they just went and said, hey, all the ape holders on the different collections, you're now you now have a treasury. Here you go. You know, instead of going, oh, here's all the NFT holders, you're now going to get a separate coin, right? That gives you now access to over a treasury. It's like mm. Right. Why are you adding more layers here, right? And I understand why because it gives liquidity and 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 it, different kinds. Well, of they things. also just convert this potential energy into like kinetic energy in some way, right? Yeah. Like they just manifest money out of thin air. Yeah, but I but I think it's more like I said before. I think it's more interesting if if like any kind of funding mechanism or DAO mechanism is more constrained towards specific outcomes. Instead of just going, hey, people, write proposals and we might give you money. It's like, I don't know, it should be more constrained towards specific specific stuff. And obviously, in the case of ApeCoin, it's like, yeah, we're going to fund stuff that makes board apps more board ape. Just do more projects. Same with Nounstar, right? They're funding stuff which allows people to propagate the now meme and like build more. They've done physical works. They've done more digital stuff. That it's fine. But I think there's something more interesting here. Yeah. All right, man. I think uh, maybe let's let's close here. I feel like I could talk with you for hours. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's so much to talk about. So much yeah. to talk about. But yeah, no, it's been a great discussion. Yeah.